Well, today we're going to pick up from where Pastor Enro left off last Lord's Day in John chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 42. Now, since this block of text is a continuation of the story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman, when we read it today, I want to include, I want to go back and include all of the context. So let's start in verse 1. Again, this is John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank it from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have, five, have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, do you not say that there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. If you hear the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. 
Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let us pray. Fathers, we come now to this most sacred time when your word is opened. Father, I ask that you be with us. Father, strengthen our faith. Lord, may we walk away from this text today with all confidence and trust that your Son indeed is our Savior, Savior of the world, and is our only hope. We ask in his name. Amen. Now, before we get into some details here with this text, I want to share something with you that happened on Facebook. I guess this is my commercial. But it is related. It's, it's, it's not unrelated. Earlier in the week, I was over at the seminary office, and I saw a book on Dr. Talbot's uh, shelf called The Mission of God by Joe Boot. Now, that was the second book I've seen by Joe Boot in his office. The first one was Ruler of Kings. And I took that home and started it, but I, I hadn't finished it. And then when I saw this other book, which is much thicker than the other one, I was just kind of flipping through it. One of the things that caught my attention was in the front of the book, there's a recommendation by none other than our dear pastor, late pastor, Dr. T. It's also on the back cover. So I read the uh, recommendation. Here's what he said. We are facing the final demise of Christianity in Western society, resulting from the failure of the modern church to be God's mission to the world. What shall be the response of the Christian church? Dr. Boot challenges us to look to the history of the church and reconsider what has been lost in the eventual ejection of the Puritan paradigm. The answer, says Dr. Boot, can be found in the great Puritan hope of applying historic reformational covenant theology of the Holy Scripture to every area of life. Puritan thought sought to externalize its theology in a praxis, in, into a praxis that was life-changing in personal, family, and societal realms. This book is a must-read for every Christian, whether layman, scholar, or minister. So after seeing it, I thought, you know, I really need to get back to finishing that first book and check out this second one. I think I'm going to take up our pastor's advice of reading this book. So I took a picture of the cover, posted it on Facebook, and I included the quote from Dr. T. Well, not long after I posted that, I get a comment from a gentleman on Facebook that I'm not, uh, I don't really know him. I don't know him at all. Just we're connected on Facebook, but I don't know anything about him. And here was his response. He said, this looks like an interesting read. I was a Reformed Christian for 16 years of my adult life and attended a conservative evangelical university. I deconstructed Christianity, and I am now, I'm unconvinced that a God or gods even exist. I am glad that the little snippet here recognizes that Christianity is failing, and I totally see why. For me, it wasn't because of the people. It's just that I see the hyper-reality of a God or God, spirits, angels, extra-temporal existence unconvincing. If you want Christianity to survive, it needs to loosen up to a more practical, less fundamental, less evangelical form. Otherwise, there are going to be a lot of people like me who ask questions and totally ditched it after spending my entire adult life in the church. And he gives his ages 18 through 34 in the church. Now, I haven't responded back to him, 
I may or may not, um, in fact, as I'm thinking about it, I may just send the link to the sermon. <laughs> but there are a couple of issues here. One, let's be clear, Dr. T was not suggesting that Christianity is failing. Or if you want to say Christianity as in God's eternal plan is failing. That wasn't his point. He was talking about the failure of many churches today in Western society. But secondly, the solution Dr. T would suggest for churches today is most certainly not what this guy is suggesting. Notice he says, if you want Christianity to survive, it needs to loosen up to a more practical, less fundamental, less evangelical form. And he says that right after telling us that he personally deconstructed Christianity. Well, what does that mean, to deconstruct Christianity? I don't know if you're aware of this. If you're on social media, you see this, this terminology floating all over the place. It's a fad now. Well, I don't want to get deep into the woods of a bunch of philosophical mumbo-jumbo to bore you, but I want to do give you a quick summary. John Bloom, I think this was over on Desiring God, explains that in the 1960s, a French philosopher named Derrida began to advocate for a postmodern philosophy of language and this relationship to our conceptions of meaning that he called deconstruction. Now, John gets into more detail. And again, I'm not going to bore you with that, but he goes on to summarize it as following. He says, if I understand Derrida correctly, deconstruction is a literary philosophy arguing that we're wrong to assume that by merely reading an author's words, we can understand something about absolute truth. Since our conception of truth, our constructs of what everything means will be significantly different from the author's. And... Deconstruction is a method of literary criticism that takes apart and analyzes an author's use of language in effort to discern his construct of meaning. For Derrida, there is no meaning outside the text of a philosopher's written work, no absolute truth that the writer is shedding light on for the reader. There's only the writer's construct of meaning, of truth, represented in the text he wrote. And so John asked the question, then, well, why have Christians adopted this term deconstruction from a philosophy based on principles of naturalism. He says, I think we can make a, a connection from something theologian Kevin Bonhuser has written about Derrida. Kevin wrote, the motive behind Derrida's strategy of undoing, that is deconstruction, stems from his, his alarm over illegitimate appeals to authority and exercises of power. The belief that one has reached the single correct meaning, or God, or truth, provides a wonderful excuse for damning those with whom one disagrees as either fools or heretics. Neither priests who supposedly speak for God nor philosophers who supposedly speak for reason could be, should be trusted. This logocentric claim to speak from a privileged perspective, whether it's from reason or the word of God, is a bluff that must be called, or better, deconstructed. Now, in my experience, witnessing a few people go through this whole scenario playing around with this stuff what typically happens is that this, it starts off with people questioning why we should accept the bible as the infallible inerrant word of god it's argued that the only reason people do accept it is because someone of authority someone of power someone we trust maybe the pastor the rabbi maybe the parents just told us to accept it and so we did and then usually what I see 
go from there. The next step is the argument is made the Bible's full of problems. It's full of moral problems, for example, condoning slavery. It's full of contradictions, supposedly, and so on. And so this clearly evidences that the Bible is no different from any other book. And then where this leads, typically, is either someone who still claims some sort of faith, somewhat, but it's kind of disconnected from the Bible, or in the case of this guy on Facebook, they just ditch religion altogether and become atheists. Again, notice what he said. I'm glad that the little snippet here recognizes that Christianity is failing, and I totally see why. For me, it wasn't because of the people. It's just that I see the hyper-reality of a God, or God, spirits, angels, and extra-temporal existence unconvincing. Which is just another way of saying, I find the Bible unconvincing. And he says, if you want Christianity to survive, it needs to loosen up to a more practical, less fundamental, less evangelical form. Which again, is just another way of saying, hey, if you want your churches to survive, stop with all the inspired and aired Bible talk, Stop with all the doctrines, stop with all the dogma, and just be more practical. That's how you're going to survive, according to this guy. Now, I'm not sure why this guy thinks he's in a position to tell us how to do Christianity, given the fact that his method failed him miserably. You know, he's at the point now where he doesn't even acknowledge God anymore, but there you have it. And this is very common today. It's all over the place. In reality, what you have here is not some real genuine concern for the church, for truth, for people. What you have here is ironically some self-proclaimed authority figure who wants to tell everyone else how they should think and live based on their opinions. To which I say, well, who made you God? Who made you the authority? Who made you the expert? Why do I need to listen to you? Take a hike. Now, you may be wondering, okay, what does this have to do with John? What does this have to do with our text here in chapter 4? Well, I'm glad you asked. Now, Pastor Enro covered verses 1 through 26, in which there are a number of things we could highlight that relate to this whole deconstruction nonsense. But he already covered those verses last week, and so I'm not going to rehash that. Our block of text today is verses 27 through 42. But even there, I think there's something very interesting going on in this section that speaks directly to all of this nonsense. First of all, I want you to notice how this story of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman comes to a close and how there is an interruption in the story. And notice, you can read verses 27 through 42 and skip verses 31 through 38, and the story will still flow. It still makes sense. Don't believe me? Just listen. See if you can detect where I've skipped verses without looking at your text. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. 
Now, if that's all you heard, the story still flows. It still makes sense. And you still could infer some important points from it. So before we go on to that little interruption in the story, let's just look at that part of it that I just read and make some observations. First of all, I want you to notice how the Samaritan encounter ends in verses 39 through 42. It says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. First of all, I want you to notice the emphasis on belief. Beloved, do you recall what we have said regarding the purpose of this gospel? It's right here again in this story. You know, there's another book I've been reading recently, and that's O. Palmer Robertson's book, Christ of the Consummation. And in that book, Robertson highlights the role of belief in John's gospel. In fact, he calls this gospel the gospel of belief. He says the permeating structure of John's gospel focuses on belief and unbelief as the alternative options presented to every reader. No fewer than 20 instances occur across the whole of John's gospel which a specific section climaxes or concludes by giving clear notice of either belief or unbelief on the part of the participants in the narrative. And in his example, he highlights these. Um, starting in chapter 1, he, he points, for example, John 1, 11 through 12, to his own things he came, yet his own people did not embrace him. But as many as received him, to them he gave authority to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Robertson says these, ver these familiar verses from John's prologue take the reader from the wonders of the creating word to each individual's response of belief or unbelief in the incarnate God. From this earliest point, believing and not believing summarizes the critical contrast in this gospel. Then he goes to John 3, where he states the nighttime discussion with Nicodemus concludes by noting five times over in six verses that believing or not believing in the one and only Son of God determines the experience of eternal life or condemnation for every person. And then after the lengthy interaction among Jesus, the Samaritan woman, and the villagers, the narrative again concludes, many more that his Samaritans believed in him through his word. For we ourselves have heard and know that this is indeed the Savior of the, wor of the world. Will Robinson goes on with many more examples from the Gospel of John, which I won't read for sake of time, but then he concludes this. These 11 instances almost all of which function as John's summarizing conclusion of a section of his gospel, along with the nine critical incidents previously treated, underscore the structural role of belief or unbelief throughout the entirety of John's gospel. This overview serves well as background for a full appreciation for the stated purpose of this gospel, which will now be considered. As the book moves to its conclusion, the author does something never attempted by the three previous gospelers, he turns outwardly to you, his readers. He directly addresses you when he says these things are written so that all of you, that is my readers for at least the next 2,000 years, might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so that believing all of you might have fullness of life in his name. 
No other gospel does such a thing. But John had already done it once before in his gospel. Recall the soldier at the foot of the cross broke the legs of the man crucified to the right and left of Jesus to hasten their death. With their legs broken, they could no longer push their agonizing bodies upward to capture one more breath of life for their gasping lungs. But coming to Jesus, they found that he was already dead. To be absolutely sure that no trace of life remained, the soldier in charge plunged his spear into Jesus' side, and immediately out came blood and water, which satisfied the soldier that Jesus was indeed dead. John declares that the man who witnessed these things testifies to the truth of what he saw with his own eyes, so that, quote, you also may believe. Who is this you? It's you, the reader of this gospel. So twice John states the purpose of his gospel, that you, his readers, whoever you are, wherever and whenever, might believe. To you, his readers of, his, of this current day, John testifies through this gospel so that each and every one of you might believe. The witness is there. Not a proof, which may be disputed, but a witness, a testimony, which indeed may be rejected. But the authenticity of the testimony still stands. One thing I know, said the man born blind after being healed by Jesus, once I was blind, but now I see. The Pharisees might eject the man from the synagogue, but they could not deny the fact of his personal testimony. In the same way, a person may discard the eyewitness testimony of John as recorded in this gospel, you can even deny the crucifixion of Jesus if you choose, but the personal witness of the author still stands. As an eyewitness, he gives his testimony and urges you to believe. This personalized dimension of John's gospel cannot be missed. Whoever you are, as you dare to read this testimony, you must hear out this eyewitness as he addresses you. He writes that you might believe. That's the purpose of his writing, the heart of this gospel. John is indeed the gospel of belief. So do you believe? Robertson goes on. Are you among the people blessed so that you believe and confess the resurrected and sin of Jesus to be your Lord and your God? What a blessing it will be to your life when by God's grace you take on the status proposed by Jesus. Be a believer. Make it the hallmark of your life. Rather than struggling to respond in faith to each crisis as it arises, define your essential personhood as a believer. Inheriting this admonition to be a believer is the prospect of energizing power from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Despite all your doubts, certainly no more than Thomas's, you can be a believer. Immediately following this fresh perspective on believing, John declares for the second and final time the purpose of his gospel. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may possess life in his name. This gospel, by its inherent structure and by its stated purpose, is the gospel of belief. Do you believe? And so that's one thing we certainly cannot miss from this story with the Samaritans. And notice that in verse 39 it says that many Samaritans of that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And then in verse 41, it says that many more believe because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. Now, some commentators have tried to argue that believing Jesus by hearing him directly is said to downplay believing in Jesus because of someone else's testimony. 
I don't think that's the point because after all, what did the woman testify to? She testified of his word, what he spoke. They heard from her about what he said. So, beloved, whether it's through the woman or directly, the emphasis is still this, belief in the word of God. And so I ask you, where do you stand today in relation to the word of God? It's no coincidence that in all of this deconstruction nonsense, which is leading many souls to hell, it always starts off with attacking what? The Bible. The written word of God. And you can dress it up with all this fancy philosophical terminology and categories to pass yourself off as being some sort of intellectual and the smartest guy in the room. But beloved, it's still the same old nonsense from day one, from the garden. Has God really said? It always comes back to that. Every single time. And so where do you stand on the word? How much of the word is a part of your daily life? How often do you read it? How often do you meditate on its truths? You may be here today feeling a little bit like that guy on Facebook, feeling a little lost, a little confused, doubting everything. If that's the case, let me ask you this. How much time are you investing in the word? Or are you too busy listening to all the noise and nonsense from everybody else? And you know, I always find it interesting, too, that these guys who deconstruct and apostatize, they never go away quietly. They almost always have something to say. When Fanatic, the hip-hop guy I mentioned earlier, famous, said he was a Calvinist and left, what did he do? He went straight to writing a book doing podcasts to tell you how you should think according to him. This guy on Facebook just comes out of nowhere, tries to make Dr. T say something he didn't imply or say, and then he adds his two cents about how we should be doing church. Beloved, see through all that nonsense. People will attack the authority of God, the authority of Christ and his word by doing what? by setting themselves up as the authority. You're never going to get rid of the notion of authority. You will never get rid of the idea of having non-empirically verified presuppositions. It's always going to come down to this. Whose authority and whose word will you accept? Is it God's? Is it the word of the eternal creator of the universe or just some random guy on Facebook and some failed hip-hop artist because they can't wrap their mind around some things due to their own ignorance? Take your pick. I think I'm going to go with the creator. Well, another important thing we can infer from this story is regarding what specifically we are to believe. Notice verse 42. He said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we, that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. 
Beloved, understand something. This trip through Samaria was no accident. As already noted, the Samaritans were half-breeds, a mixed people despised by strict Jews. As Robertson points out in that same book, coincidentally, he says Samaritans had been aliens to the covenant people of God for 500 years. At the time of Judah's mass exile, the Babylonians implanted various peoples from other nationalities and ethnic groups to keep the land from turning into a wasteland. Though worshiping Israel's God, they set up their own uh, syncretistic centers in their various towns. When the Samaritans offered to assist the returning Israelites to rebuild their temple, they were bluntly repulsed by Israel's leadership. Occupying the territory north of Judah, they perpetually maintained a worship center rivaling Jerusalem. And as John comments, Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. In fact, the greatest slur that Jesus' enemies could place on him was to label him a Samaritan. And you'll see that in John chapter 8 when we get there, where the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan? And have a demon. Beloved, this was no accident. Jesus could have gone a different route, but he didn't. And why did he go this way? Why speak to a Samaritan woman? Well, again, look at the result. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world, cosmos. Beloved, this is none other than the truth of John 3.16 being played out in real time, in space right before your eyes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I don't think this was any accident. I don't think it was any accident that his trip through Samaria occurs right after we hear the truths of John chapter 3. Again, this is John three sixteen unfolding before your very eyes. And notice the emphasis and thus contrast of Samaritans with Jews. Beloved, John 3.16 has nothing to do with this notion that Jesus died for everyone without exception and then stating some philosophical truth about the supposed free will of man. That's not the point at all. The point is this. Jesus did not come just to save some Jews, for God so loved the cosmos, the world. God is redeeming his elect not only from the Jews, but as Revelation 7 says, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. In Revelation 5, 8 through 10, we read, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Beloved, this is what's being displayed right here in John chapter 4. It has nothing to do with some sort of philosophical statement about man's will. Many people will believe, even among these despised half-breeds, and many people will not even among the most privileged of Jews. And John had already said in his prologue how this happens. To all who did receive him who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God has an elect people to redeem from every nation. And that is exactly what Christ came to do.
to seek and save those people. He is the Savior of the cosmos, not of the Jews only. Which leads me to my final observation. Everything that I've said thus far comes from, again, reading this block and skipping over verses 31 through 38. We heard how one could read this block, skipping those verses, and the story still flows perfectly, still makes sense. Now, why did I do it this way? Why did I approach it this way? Because I think verses 31 through 38 is intentionally meant to not only interrupt the Samaritan story, but it does so by providing the theological backing for what's going on with the Samaritans. Recall that the disciples had taken off before Jesus spoke with the Samaritan woman. They left to go get food, verse 8. And they don't show back up until verse 27, where it interrupts the story. And again, this is what it says. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So this woman left her water jar and went into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And then we read that they're urging him to eat, then prompts Jesus to respond with this. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And you got to have to, well, yeah, you kind of have to chuckle here. Who do these disciples sound like? We just heard about it in chapter four earlier. The woman said, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from himself as, his, as did his sons and the livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. <sighs> Silly woman. Silly Samaritan. She thought Jesus was talking about H2O. Sounds like something those silly half-breeds would do. And now here you have the disciples saying, Rabbi, eat. But I have food that you don't know about. Who brought him food? Was it somebody call Uber? Where did the food come from? Folks, it's the same problem. Lest you think, oh, those silly half-breeds just don't get it. Here you have Jewish men displaying the exact same spiritual blindness and slowness of heart as that despised Samaritan woman. Don't miss the point. For there is no distinction, Paul said in Romans 3, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Well, Jesus responds to their slowness. He said, in my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say that there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now keep in mind, they're still in Samaria when he says, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. 
I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Now, there's much that could be said about these verses, but since I'm pressed for time, I simply want to draw your attention to verse 34. I believe this verse is central to the whole thing in this block of text, where Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Again, just as I don't believe this trip through Samaria, Samaria was an accident, I don't believe this little interruption in the story is, is an accident either. God, in his infinite wisdom, decreed these very things to take place so as to provide us with the theological backing to what all is going on here in this chapter. Calvin, commenting on the words that I may finish his work, states, by adding these words, Christ fully explains what is the will of the Father to which he is devoted, namely, to fulfill the commission which, he had, which had been given to him. Thus every man ought to consider his own calling, that he might not consider as done to God what he has rashly undertaken as, at his own suggestion. What was the office of Christ is well known. It was to advance the kingdom of God, to restore to life lost souls, to spread the light of the gospel, and in short, to bring salvation to the world. Beloved, the gospel of John bears this out time and time again. We're going to see in the next chapter, 5, verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And then in John 6, verses 36 through 40, we read, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will not never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then in John 10, it says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I told you, and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Beloved, Jesus' food was to complete his great mission on earth. And part of that mission was and is to gather the Father's elect people into his kingdom. And what you see in this interaction with the Samaritan woman and the many others from her town is nothing more than that will coming to pass right before your very eyes. And this finally brings me back to those words by the gentleman on Facebook. For all of his reading, for all of his deconstruction, for all of his philosophy, he missed the whole point entirely. But God's not interested in your plan or your ideals of the world. God didn't leave it up for you, for me, for us to figure that out. Rather, as our confession states so beautifully, 
God, the creator of all things, that uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. And within that divine providence, the confession tells us that by the decree of God for the manifestation of his glory, some men and angels are predestined unto everlasting life and others foreordained to everlasting death. Deconstruct and complain and whine and moan all you want. He is Lord. He's the sovereign. He's God, not you. This isn't about you. This revolves around him, his glory, his decree, his will, his wisdom. And so, friends, you have a simple choice to make today. Are you going to get on board with his plan or are you going to rebel by insisting on your own way and your will? Listen, I know that we have doubts. I know that you'll have questions. I know that there are struggles. Life just simply does not go as we plan it. But understand something. The eternal decree of God has marched forward, is marching forward, and will continue to march forward with or without your approval. Despite how things may appear, despite how dark things may get, despite your own doubts as to whether or not God is actually in control, his eternal decree marches forward. And it's not contingent upon whether you're cool with it or not, whether or not you accept it, whether or not you think it's the best thing to do. Your opinions about worship, your opinions about how we should do church, your opinions about how we sh uh, what we should do in order to make Christianity survive, your opinions about what we should preach or teach are all worthless. It's worthless. It doesn't say that Jesus came to get your advice. Jesus came to do the will of the Father who sent him and accomplished his work. And he will accomplish that work. Bank on it. In Matthew 16, we read that when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, it's interesting that even though the disciples were shocked to see Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman, John goes on to tell us that even though they marveled, no one said anything to Jesus. They didn't ask, well, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? 
even as slow of heart as they may have been in understanding Jesus' actions at times, they still had enough sense to keep their mouth shut. I'll close with these words from Calvin. That the disciples wondered as the evangelist relates, uh, that the disciples wondered as the evangelist relates might arise from one of two causes. Either that they were offended at the mean condition of the woman or that they reckoned the Jews to be polluted if they entered into conversation with the Samaritans. Now, both of these feelings proceeded from a devout reverence for their master, yet they are wrong in wondering at it as an improper thing, that he deigns to bestow so great honor on a woman who was utterly despised. For why do they not rather look at themselves? They would certainly have found no less reason to be astonished that they who were men of no, no note and almost the offscorings of the people and yet were raised to the highest rank of honor. And yet it is useful to observe what the evangelist says, that they did not venture to put to a question, for we are taught by their example that if anything in the works or words of God and of Christ be disagreeable to our feelings, we ought not to give ourselves to a loose rein so as to have the boldness to murmur. We ought not to deconstruct but ought to preserve a modest silence until what is hidden from us be revealed from heaven. The foundation of such modesty lies in the fear of God and in reverence for Christ. Beloved, do you believe? Do you fear? Do you revere the Lord and his Christ? Set aside what you think is best. That means nothing. Do you tremble at his word. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. But the Father is seeking such people to worship. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Let us pray.